Welcome to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. I'm your aptly named host of your favorite hebdomadal podcast. Oh, I'm glad you're with me. I'd be stricken with galactosemia if you tried to sugarcoat the idea that you missed this week's show. Grameen Team Dream. In his brand spanking new book, Small Loans, Big Dreams, Alex Counts recounts the story of Grameen Bank's wild success, moving millions of people out of poverty by elevating microfinancing for the poor. Alex tells the story and shares valuable lessons beyond economic development. On Tony's Take Two, take time for yourself. We're sponsored by Turn Two Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission. Turn-2.co. It's a pleasure to welcome back Alex Counts. He is the author of the book, Small Loans, Big Dreams, Grameen Bank and the Microfinance Revolution in Bangladesh, America, and Beyond. His other books include Change the World Without Losing Your Mind and When in Doubt, Ask for More, which we talked about on this show. In 1997, he established Grameen Foundation with the support of Nobel laureate Dr. Muhammad Yunus, became its president and CEO, and ran the Grameen Foundation for its first 18 years. Now, he's an independent consultant to nonprofits, including the India Philanthropy Alliance, and an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins University. He's at Alex Counts and alexcounts.com. Welcome back to the show, Alex Counts. Pleasure to be here. I love what you do, Tony, and just uh, so looking forward to the conversation. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. Yes, we have the hour together. My pleasure as well. Thank you. Congratulations on the book. Well, it's it's great to have it out there. It's a you know it's a third edition, um, but it was so so much needed to be out there because so much has happened since the second edition. It really feels like a new book, and uh, it was about quadruple the work I thought it would be to get it out. But it was more than worth it. Absolutely, more than worth it. Of course, of course. All right, let's start with a, a, a basic understanding. What let's acquaint folks with what microfinance is, so we know everybody's on the same page to start. Sure. Well, you know, Mike, as some histories of microfinance explain, this my book is in one of them that, you know, the, the idea of bringing financial services to people that are excluded from them as a way to help them self-actualize, get out of poverty, uh, get more control over their lives goes back hundreds of years. There are people have been trying it. Uh, in fact, um, the pawn shop uh, in its origins several hundred years ago was an effort to bring financial services and it kind of morphed into something that's now kind of seedy. But in its modern incarnation, Muhammad Yunus and some other innovators in the 70s uh, said, we want to bring financial services, especially loans to people who lack collateral, are illiterate, poor women, uh, have all the disadvantages uh, in in country of Bangladesh where he started. And we want to design a, a bank uh, that is is not just has them on a like a kind of little charity program, but is actually designed especially for them and gives them financial services, things you and I take for granted, a loan when we need it, a place to deposit our money, insurance services, uh, makes it available to them. And what they found is people were so hardworking and so grateful for it that they really prioritized paying back the loans, depositing money uh, when they had extra, and it made for a bank that was uh, able to sustain itself over time and and uh, and help many of those women and their families get out of poverty. If not in that generation, then set up their children to get out of poverty. So, and you know, it's it's loans to start start or expand a small business, um, and is um, uh, is you know, so there, it's not just loans for consumption or loans for uh, though some of it may go to that, but it's mainly loans to engage in some sort of productive activity that the poor are doing already for the most part, but just do it with a little more capital. You uh, you quote Muhammad Yunus uh, as saying that uh, I think it's access to capital or or access to credit is a, is a human right. Let let uh, acquaint us with Muhammad Yunus because he's he's key to the 
to the he, well he's the founder he's, he's key to the, this expansion of microfinance i know he's uh, a mentor of yours a colleague of yours a friend of yours acquaintance with this with this nobel laureate you know i've I, well, i've made a lot of bad decisions in my life big and small but one of the best was adopting him as a mentor at a time where he was willing to take on someone with you know only no skills just idealism and energy um, and I've adopted many more mentors, but he was he was a, a very good choice. Uh, um, and basically, when he talks about credit as human right, just just to take that, he's you know people have criticized it. People have criticized him up and down, uh, and uh, you know that's part of being a public figure and getting sure. the Nobel Prize and all. Doing but, something bold, yeah. exactly. Um, and if and if you're if you want to do something bold for society, you know, and you want to be successful, get ready for criticism. It's it's coming uh, your way, but. Basically, what he was saying is, you know, in the, when the UN says that everyone has a right to um, free speech or to health, uh, health for all, the way it was normally done was it was like it was the resp responsibility of governments to bring that to people. And he said, why don't we give people a right to actually realize those things for themselves? And and he thought that one of the key tools that people could use to to actually realize their own right to food and right to shelter was to actually have the credit to be able to to uh, be an agent of their own empowerment rather than waiting for someone else to do it. And so that's why you said it was it was the human right that could help act, bring a lot of the other human rights to people who lack them. But basically he was a you know son you know son of a of a uh, a kind of a upper middle class jeweler, um, not very wealthy but not poor in Bangladesh. Uh, went off on a Fulbright fellowship like I would do to his country, but he took the full Fulbright to the US. Uh, got a PhD in economics at Vanderbilt. Uh, and while he was you know, thinking about staying in the United States, he liked it here. When his country fought a liberation war and became independent in 1971, he got caught up in the idealism of building a new country. And he moved back to what would a country that kind of isn't far from what Haiti is today in terms of broken down, nothing works. No, you know, just it was. And he said, well, let's just start. And he started teaching. Um, but but he didn't get too far into teaching economics at the second most prestigious university in the country um, before he just started saying, gosh, you know, this seems kind of empty teaching when people are starving outside my classroom. Let's go figure out. Let me get close to the problem um, that and see what's going on there and see if I can even help one person. And through through a series of hundreds and hundreds of conversations with people in the villages around his university, he he said, first of all, agriculture is important. So he started a pretty successful agricultural program. But then he said that didn't really do it. He said that fundamentally people lack access to capital to apply their skills in the marketplace. Um, and then he started a tiny credit program. Uh, but then he had the boldness and the and the tenacity to at, develop at first it with his own at first with his own money. Yeah, he he his first twenty seven dollars was he just he couldn't. But then he said, wait a second, I can only do this. I can't do this for, you know, I, so then he started getting banks involved and doing it institutionally. But originally he was just, he was shocked that such a small amount of money was holding people back because basically people were, you know, in the thralls of, of money lenders. And basically most of the profits of the work they did, they, had, they were quite skilled stool makers in that village. It happened. Uh, and they were making these beautiful stools and getting a tiny fraction of the value of them because they didn't have the money to buy the raw materials. So he just he like said, oh, my, twenty seven dollars will 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 set you all free from almost slavery. I, you know, I'll do it today. But then he said, what's the institutional solution to this after they he saw them succeed? And that and that started what became Grameen Bank, which today serves eight million women across this country and has been a model for programs serving tens of millions more. And uh, he and the bank won the Nobel Peace Prize in in 2006. It was a big surprise. I mean, I I, I thought if he was ever going to win, it was going to be 2005, which was the International Year of Microcredit, which we a bunch of us kind of had been conniving to get the UN to adopt, and they finally did. And but and once he didn't get it, then we thought it was lost cause. And they have, you know they have odds makers for who's going to win Nobel prizes, you know, <laughs> like for everything. And he wasn't even on the like the top ten, and yet he, as a surprise, he won it. Um, and it was uh, it was just you know an amazing recognition. Um, it was also a double edged sword, uh, as I didn't, as I barely understood then. I should say um, it was going to bring new resources and attention to him and his work and people that worked with him like me, but it would also bring new scrutiny. 
uh, and criticism and enemies. Uh, and all that played out in the years after that surprise announcement. Did you go to the ceremony? I did. Um, it was, I, looked, I looked. Okay, I looked for you in the audience. Uh, there were there was a couple of videos. I didn't see you. I I, wondered, I figured you were there. I, I looked for you. Yeah, it was. You know, it's it's always you know kind of a classic problem. You get a big honor and who travels with you and and all. But uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to be invited. I I sat in row, row twelve next to my board chair at Grameen Foundation and friend uh, Susan Davis uh, and. Uh, uh, and, uh, and it was just, you know, it was, it was like a, this dream come true. And then we, you know, you go to this concert afterwards and like Lionel Richie and Sharon Stone and <laughs> all these people are celebrating, you know, it just, I remember walking out of that evening and like, oh my God, like everything we wanted in terms of, you know, getting people to pay attention to what Muhammad Yunus had done that we always felt was not given the attention it deserves. It's like that era is over and it was over, but the era ahead was didn't turn out exactly as we thought, um, but uh, but it was an amazing recognition. The the Norwegians do a super classy job with it. The weather stinks at that type of year, but other than that, it just it's every aspect of it is done beautifully, and they've really the, the whole city, maybe the whole country. I didn't really travel. Is like it's a city designed around the concept of peace, um, and museums and everything about it is. Um, They've like adopted the Nobel Peace Prize almost became their like civic religion. Uh, and it's just beautiful. You know, my work is planned giving the uh, the Nobel Prizes were originally a, a gift in Alfred Nobel's will to uh, to I, th I think to a university. Uh, yeah, there's something around that history. Yeah, that's and, the and, origin. And, yeah. And then all of them are in all, all of them except the Peace Prize, I believe, are given in Sweden. But because he believed also in Norwegian Sweden kind of solidarity, he had the Peace Prize done in Oslo, uh, and uh, and that's been a tradition ever since. But I guess that must have been in his will as well. This idea of of twenty seven dollars being transformative to to someone's business, um, and and you know, let's just let's just say a little more about that. He started in Bangladesh. And then, but then, I mean, the, the bank, between the bank and the foundation, I, I recorded uh, Philippines, Nicaragua, India, Uganda, Rwanda, Cameroon, Haiti, Indonesia, uh, the U.S. We're going to, I'd like to talk some about the U.S. too, yep. uh, uh, where maybe $27 isn't quite transformational, but still what, what we would consider small amounts of capital can be, can be transformative but yes you know talk about those opening days where and and what what the lives of the women were like that 27 dollars could be could be so influential so so valuable to them well it's you know it's a little misleading because 27 dollars was worth more than and the and the and the and the bangladeshi taco is worth more but you know still it's a, it's a small amount it's let's, yeah. let's say right. in today's dollars it might be uh you know a couple hundred dollars for 40 people um and, and we're, basically, we're talking they, about, let me just orient folks. We're talking about uh, mid seventies. The bank started in 1976. Yeah, he, he exactly. Okay. He, he had okay. been kind of uh, walking around the villages, um, in, in basking in the glow of this successful agriculture project. But then the people who didn't have any land were like, we didn't really get help much. Um, and so he said, well, what would help you? And then basically he found that, and this has become a generalized issue that, you know, as, as my board chair, Susan Davis said, uh, um, she said, you know, in, in the in in developing countries, there aren't enough jobs, there isn't a social safety net. So basically, a lot of people, it's either you work for yourself or you starve. Now, you may not be the, the greatest entrepreneur, or you may be very good, but it's your only choice. And so you try your best to do some sort of economic activity that you don't need to rely on someone else to employ you or the government to give you uh, resources, you're on your own. And so people use, I mean, sometimes these businesses are capitalized with the equivalent of 10 or $15. Um, and, and it's very inefficient because, you know, they need to go back and buy raw materials every day and that costs money. And so, and so suddenly if you, if you have someone running a, a tiny, tiny business, whether it's trading or manufacturing or services, and you go from having working capital of $15 to $100, that can be revolutionary. That can bring efficiencies, that can allow you to take risks 
uh, that can allow you to go to scale that you wouldn't. And then, and some people stabilize there. You know, they don't, the poverty isn't going to end in their generation. It may end in the next one because uh, they use a little bit of surplus to educate their kids. But other people, you know, people that would, might've been Bill Gates, uh, if they lived it, born in different circumstances, next thing you know, their business has $500 of capital and $1,000 and and $10,000. Uh, and, uh, and again, people say, well, not, not all of the poor entrepreneurs. And is it true, but, but all poor people want to survive. And again, when they're not jobs, there's no social safety net. You got you to try your best at, at business because that's your only option. And you're probably going to be more successful of two conditions. One is you get capital. And two, if, if, if you're in a supportive network of people that are going to try to open doors for you, throw business your way, talk you out of bad ideas and, and, and foolhardy risks. Because uh, as I say, running nonprofits or, or you know, I, I would have a lot of good ideas, but one out of every three of my ideas was a bad one. And I would have pe smart people around me to talk me out of the bad ones because I didn't know what they were. Well, the same thing is with Grameen, the, the kind of ingenuity of what he said is he organized people in these support groups or solidarity groups, and you couldn't you couldn't borrow from the bank unless you were part of one. And those groups have incentives to be there to kind of support and oversee and help each borrower, which is you know important for any, I mean, you talk to any businessman who survived or woman, they're gonna say, you know, there were, there were a moment where I almost came off the rails, but someone helped me. Um, and uh, a, a family member, an investor, uh, a, a spouse, whatever, and you're trying to recreate that supportive environment, social environment, uh, through building it into the lending system, and and that meant that you didn't even need collateral because you had that supportive network, uh, the incentive to repay, and and you know, absent short periods after a natural disaster, Grameen has had 97, 98, 99 percent repayment for its entire history. You just scratched the surface of something that I'd like to go a little deeper on. Uh, our misconceptions of the poor, that they're, that, that they're not bright, that they're not ambitious, uh, that many may in fact be illiterate, but it, it, it goes beyond, it goes beyond the, the, the misconceptions yeah. that we have that in terms of their, their innate skills and resourcefulness and desires. Talk some about what you think our misconceptions here in the U.S. are around the poor. Yeah, and, and, and people tend to be particularly misconceived around the poor in their own society. You know, they might say, well, the poor of Asia are hardworking maybe, but in my own environment. And because mm. you see, the, the, way I, the way I see it is, you know, we, we have to tell ourselves stories that, that we can kind of live with ourselves if we don't live in poverty of why it's okay that people, um, wh why there are people here that I don't have to like, you know, spend a lot of time trying to address that because if, you know, if, if they're not, if they're not bright, if they're not hardworking, if they're somehow engaged in uh, self-destructive behavior and all of that happens sometimes, but if that's at the root cause of it, then I can kind of let myself off the hook and I can let my government off the hook. I can let my charitable work because it's like they do it to themselves. And, and yet the truth is that People that live in conditions of poverty, in certain ways, are more highly skilled than you and I. Um, as one of the women I quote in the book, who who ran a kind of a like a microcredit program in Connecticut, she says, "You show me a woman on six hundred dollars a month on a welfare check or right. through a business who can like get her family through the month, month after month. Like that's a scrambler. That's someone who can like optimize finance more than you and I can." And and so, you know, we, you get thrown into an environment, if you and I were to get thrown into an environment and let's say the language issue wasn't there and we had almost nothing and, you know, you know, and a lot of people around us had almost nothing, we would fail and they would succeed because they know how to, they know how to kind of get the most out of a small amount of resources and you and I aren't used to doing, it's a skill we don't have. And so when you start, and this is Muhammad Yunus's kind of brilliance, and it's really generalizable outside of the financial services, is he, it's it's a really a strengths-based approach. It's like, let's, and, and there's management theories like this that I've been exposed to a little bit, which is they say, you know, if you're a worker and the white collar worker, and don't spend your life trying to trying to address your weaknesses, just put yourself in a job that maximizes your strengths and forget about your weaknesses. And, you know, it, it it's as good as it, far as it goes. Uh, but in, in this case, he's saying, let's, let's look at what the poor, the mere fact that they've survived poverty means they must have some skills and drive and determination and tenacity. 
And then let's build on that uh, and let's build a financial system that kind of that draws that out rather than looking at them as a series of deficits that need to be addressed by, you know, you know, by well-intentioned people that are going to teach them something, uh, you know, at the end of the day, about surviving with a little, a little, small amounts of resources, the poor have a lot to teach us. It's time for a break. Turn to communications. They have their bi-weekly newsletter out. They talk about sort of timeless strategies, things that they're advising you take a look at again for the new year uh, that they've talked about in the past, uh, over this past year. Going public with a new strategy. New strategy is only as good as your ability to explain what it aims to achieve and why it matters to your key audiences. The case for creating a PR wolf pack. Enlist a squad of allies to help drive your PR efforts because journalists are so overworked and, and burdened, it's hard to get their attention. Are you overlooking your most important audience? Encouraging you to speak uh, smartly, be intentional about when you're talking uh, internally to your your own teams. And the power of apology. Saying you're sorry and meaning it never goes out of style. Of course, there's a link to each of these where you can read the fuller post. In the newsletter, they just give you a little, little paragraph, and I reduce that to a sentence. You can get their newsletter, which is called On Message, if you go to turn-to.co. Because why would you want to do that? Your story is their mission. That's why. Now back to Grameen Team Dream. Most of these folks, I think, are, are born into poverty. You know, so it's it's been generation after generation. And as as you said earlier, you know, if if the if they can't get themselves out of poverty in in their own generation, you're you're confident that the next generation will will be better off than than their parents. That's right. And you know, the the, the research on microfinance, which is a whole controversial area that I've taken some I've taken some stands on that have been highly criticized and um, and we can get into that if you want. But basically what it tends to say um, is that, you know, a segment of borrowers somewhere between 10 and 25 percent do extremely well. Like they're they're Again, these are these are people that might have been Bill Gates um, or Mike Bloomberg if they born in different circumstances. You give them one hundred dollars and wake up five years later and they're like they're doing great uh, for that village. And uh, then there's another segment, pretty much most of the rest who are only going to benefit modestly, like their entrepreneurial skills are limited. They're, they're there and they work hard with it. Um, and, and people say, oh, my God, only, you know, you know, only 25 percent succeed. Well, the truth of the matter is 25 percent succeed wildly and the rest succeed modestly. But when I when I've gone back to visit with people who have benefited from microfinance, you know, and, and some of these studies just follow them for six or 12 months and I go back like six years or 12 years or 20 years later, I see that, you know, they're still living in conditions that maybe aren't that much better than they lived before. But especially when you lend to the women who tend to think intergenerationally, have a longer term um, kind of view than men do, I think, on average in all the societies I know, that they they took that extra money and they invested it in the, the nutrition of the children. So their brain development was a, a little better. They they hired a private tutor to make sure they would pass the government exam so they could get a good job. And then you see that, you know, that the, the educational status, the nutritional status, the ability to get a job or to create your own job, um, it, it's just wildly different from one generation to the other. So if you look at that woman, did she get out of poverty in the two years since she started borrowing three years? No. But did she have a plan that she was now able to put into motion so that her children, you stop that generational cycle of poverty with her generation? Uh, very frequently, I saw a yes. And, and uh, again, I don't think the researchers have, the, have had the patience to look at that, uh, look at those long-term trends. But to, to someone who's been around the field for 30 years, they're very obvious to me. I'm glad you brought in women because initially uh, the bank was lending to, to anyone, but women turned out to be the, the better credit risk. They, they were more reliable uh, repayers 
than than the men. Uh, can you flesh that out a little more than than what you said? Just, just yeah, a moment you know ago? this. Muhammad Yunus didn't begin as this kind of like this feminist, you know, ideal. He he just he he kind of approached it pretty in pretty simple, pragmatic way. He said, "The banking system, as I understand it, has three faults: it's anti-poor, anti-women, and anti-illiterate." So I want to I want a bank that that you don't need collateral. You can be poor and borrow. Um, that you don't have to read and write. We'll figure that one out. Uh, so uh, and. I want 50% of my borrowers to be women because 50% of the population is women. Uh, and, and, and those were the objectives he set for himself. Now, a few years in, he noticed something. He noticed that the women were very dedicated to repaying their loans, absent some major tragedy. They always paid back. Men were a little more erratic. Um, men's business were a little more profitable, but they were also, but also they took more risks and, um, and more of them failed. Um, and uh, and they and the women really kind of that that group solidarity uh, took root a lot more. Uh, they you know being supportive of each other um, and having that kind of conscience uh, to say, gosh, my business is going well, but the woman in my group is struggling. Let me go see what's how I can help her. Uh, just seems to be more of a kind of a feminine characteristic. Uh, and so, and from that point onward, he said, you know what? Basically, all new groups that we form are going to be women. He didn't kick out the men. He said they they came in, but we changed the rules, and um, and I think you know and and what ultimately happens here now some people criticize microfinance, well then you know borrowers the women borrowers but they they give the money to the men sometimes it happens sometimes they give them part of the money and they keep part of the money for their own business uh, there are lots of variations but but what 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 Muhammad Yunus ultimately said is we want to help poor families but if normally the representative of the family to an institution is the father or the husband and uh, might work in some cases, but he said microfinance works best when we're helping the family, but the representative of the family is the the mother or the wife. Um, and then she, and that gives her uh, kind of a respect in the community and within the family. It gives her some kind of leverage, even if she hands over the loan to her husband, it's still, it came through her. Uh, and that kind of changes the way he sees her oftentimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so he once once he saw this dynamic that it worked uh, better, especially from the perspective of of re- reducing poverty, um, then then he said, you know, I'm just going to go with women here. Uh, I, I'm not going to ignore the men. I, I'm going to you know pay them respect, but they are the husbands of our clients, uh, and we respect them, but we don't lend to them. We don't do business with them. Uh, especially on the loan side, and if they want to deposit money with us, fine. And and he and he advised people who took his idea forward, like Grameen America, which has done it so successfully in the U.S. for the past twelve years. Um, he said, start with women only. Like we we just we made a mistake early on. The fifty fifty thing was an experiment, and but once we learned, you don't have to do that. Just start with women and just go with it a hundred percent. Uh, I, I want to shift a little bit, I guess, maybe from the, from the factual to the to the more opinion, because you've worked in poverty alleviation for decades. What, what do you what do you see as the causes of poverty? Well, I mean, the causes of poverty. Um, I mean, you 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 know you you go, you know, at its core, um, you know, you have to look at, you know you have to look at colonialism you have to look at racism you have to look at some of the i mean ultimately if you if you go back before the industrial revolution by today's standards everyone was poor like 95 percent of people were poor um and uh and so that was the norm but then once once as we as a civilization started to kind of accumulate wealth uh um that then you know there were there were there were people in a position to um to kind of get benefit from that wealth um, whether it was natural resources or industrialization or whatever, that um, that certain people just were able to accumulate a lot of wealth uh, and and others weren't, and and that's when you and and again I, I look at when I think about poverty, I think much much less about income, uh, which can fluctuate and not be that great an indicator, but assets. And one of the things you see in this country is the average African American family, as many of your listeners know, has about ten percent of the net worth of uh, of the average white family. Um, and so assets give you options. Uh, assets allow you to think, gosh, we see a business opportunity. Let's take that. Um, we, you know, we want to we want to kind of place a bet on our brightest kid to go to a very expensive school. And when you have assets, you have options. Um, and maybe people don't always make the right decision with their options. But by having them, 
and within a family structure where you can kind of you know bring in bad decisions uh and you know like like it is with the solidarity group so um so i think you know the poverty at its core is about um is ultimately about wealth and it's about assets it's about productive assets who owns them and are there ways in society um to ensure that people that don't have access to productive assets whether it's an education or working capital for a business um, if, if they can't get them through the market mechanism, through a pure capitalistic economy, that there are other places they can go, um, whether it's the state, which has pros and cons, or whether it's a, a kind of a special purpose organization like Ramin, that there are alternatives for people that, and for those of us that have a degree of assets, we don't need a lot of help. Um, but for those that have don't have much in the way of assets and don't have much in the, in the way of options, um, are there alternatives to them? And the countries that have made the most progress around poverty have created those kind of non-market or quasi-market alternatives so people can accumulate wealth and, and basically create options for their family uh, that are you know commensurate with people that have been able to accumulate wealth one way or the other. I feel like it's uh, time for a story because the, the, the book is uh, uh, replete with stories of, of people succeeding, some uh, at different degrees, as you've suggested, you know, to different degrees. But um, I don't, you know, you pick one. Uh, what maybe a story about one of the solidarity groups or yeah. an individual? Give us, uh, give us a make, make this personal. Yeah. So you know, so for, first of all, you know, I had to before I was really qualified to do this book, the Bangladesh side. I, I needed to learn the language. I needed to do my homework in terms of the culture um, and. Uh, and yet to be able to, you know, it, it helped being an American to tell it to a global audience. Um, but I really need to immerse myself. And one of the, one of the people I got to know um, was a woman named Noni Balagosh, who would sometimes go by Noni. Um, and she was from a Hindu family. This is a majority Muslim village, majority Muslim uh, country. But um, up until fairly recently, the religious minorities were fairly well treated in Bangladesh. One of the, you know, one of the good things, many good things about that society. And so she... And, you know, her her Hindu caste was typically involved in somehow kind of making sweets and out of, you know, cottage cheese is the raw material of most Indian sweets uh, and desserts, you know. And uh, and so she her family through a series of things, you know, stupid lawsuits from one family to another, which is, you know, which happens in this country and every country and and some natural disasters. They're, they're basically they're working capital to do their business that they knew very well was depleted. And so ultimately they just had nowhere else to turn, but to have the men in the family, you know, hire themselves out as day laborers for wealthy farmers. And that was it. And their skills kind of started to erode. And when grooming came in, they lent, you know, $80 was a first loan. Uh, and Noni's like, we're back in business. And she started slowly you know, being able to buy milk, turn it into cottage cheese, sell the cottage cheese, turn the cottage cheese into sweets, um, and then started to trade, you know, and so slowly, slowly, it took three, four years, um, you know, they kind of revived a dormant skill. And, and one of the things I, you know, I, 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 you know, and got the whole family involved, like after school, the kids would go home and they would help with their piece. Um, and because uh, she was, you know, very entrepreneurial. But if you looked at her pre-Grameen, you just say, oh, this is some sort of uneducated family, the women are kind of lazy. They're just sitting around. The men work in the fields when they can get work. Otherwise, they just sit around and they must have no skills. And they were highly skilled, but lacking capital, lacking, you know, that they, they basically their skills were just not being used. And then, the, and I used to sit around, I watched them turn, you know, gallons and gallons and gallons of milk into basically like usually like a a duffel bag full of cottage cheese or sometimes two or three of them. And it was, you know, using very pr what we call primitive thing uh, tools um, that would have been, you know, would have been well recognized in the, you know, 1830s here in the U S uh, and they still work. Um, and so, but, but one of the, but what was interesting is at one point, one of their breakthroughs and there were a series of breakthroughs and setbacks, like any business is they got a contract with a, with a, with a shop in the capital, uh, to supply them with cottage cheese that the shop would then turn into sweets according to you know their own cooking method and, and baking method. And so so it was a great contract. And what would happen is they would bring in like a imagine a duffel bag stuffed with cottage cheese or two or three, and they would deliver it, they would take it on bicycles 10 miles to the bus stop. They would get on a bus, go to Dhaka, deliver it, 
And then the, the store owner would say, okay, tomorrow we need two, two um, duffel bags full, like one today, but we, we need more tomorrow. And so, and then they would just have to deliver whatever the, whatever they asked for. So that's a, that's a lot of work to do that. And then they had, you know, two men in the household would then again, bike with like, you know, 80 pounds of cottage cheese on their crossbar <laughs> and then get on a bus and go there, come back. So at one point there was a major transit strike. Um, and, and Noni Bala is very, very compelling person in her group, but I'm going to talk about the men for a second in the family. Cause she kind of put them to work and they like that once they got this, they were never going to let it go. So there was a transport strike, 14 days, the buses were not running in the country. I was stuck in the Capitol and I was like, what? Ha-? And I finally got back. The tr- strike was over. And I said, did you lose the contract? Cause the, the deal was if they ever don't deliver what they've asked for the previous night, the contract is null and void. That was the, that right. was the deal. Yeah. So they said, oh, no, no, everything was fine. What do you mean everything was fine? Um, uh, you know, I said, oh, well, instead of only biking 10 miles to the bus stop and getting on a bus and going 40 miles to um, the uh, capital, we just biked the whole 50 miles. And then we would turn around the next morning and bike back. And we did that 14 days in a row, um, you know, because that's what you need to do to keep this um and, uh, and, you know, Noni, who is really like the mother hen of the whole family and frankly, the mother hen of the whole group of borrowers in that, in that village, um, you know, she just insisted on it. And, uh, and so you had this family that was just, you know, was, was that kind of so passionate about their business would never let this contract go. And then she was also very kind to other people. Like she was the one who would insist on a very poor woman who wanted to join Grameen that people kind of had doubts about. She'd say, let her in, I'll guarantee her loan. Like, like if she doesn't pay, like, you know, she knew how to kind of pay it forward, give back. You know, she she knew to have that $80 loan set her free, let her recover her past glory, her family as a as a sweet making cottage cheese making family. And she was willing to pay it forward. So just, a you know, re- remarkable kind of woman was was not educated herself, but all of her children were getting educated. Uh, that's where a lot of her profits went to. And you know, I just got to meet and get intimate with uh, the people. Some were not as nearly as successful as she were, but they revealed things about themselves. And then I was, I followed a bunch of women who were who were borrowing from microcredit program modeled on Grameen on the south side of Chicago. And they also let me into their lives in a, in a surprising degree. Uh, but, you know, I stuck around for two years, so they didn't do it on day one. And I just got to see how it could be applied. Okay, not with an eighty dollar loan, but maybe with a thousand dollar loan that could grow to be three, four, five thousand if they paid back over time. And I saw the same dynamic in a in a in a um, in a in a really poor neighborhood in Chicago that I saw in rural Bangladesh, uh, and just got to know and be friends with uh, you know about a half dozen women in both. You know, really get to know them very well, uh, intimate details about their histories. Um, about when they've been gone through the worst things in their life and the best things. And, uh, and they gave me permission to write about uh, all of it in the book to give people a sense of that, you know, poor people are not hopeless people. Poor people are not, um, poor people, you know, just lack a few things um, in order to kind of get back on track. And they wanted that story to be told. And I, and I told it the best that I could. Uh, but, you know, the original edition suffered from some of the immaturities that I had in my late 20s when I wrote it. And, I, you know, I was a good writer, but I wasn't I, like I wasn't, I, you know, I wasn't as um, just sensitive to the things I should have been. And so this book, I was able to really take all the the great writing of the first edition, but also take out all the things that weren't quite right. Uh, and, uh, and this is the book it always meant to be that came out, uh, you know, two months ago. Noni's story is going to resonate with any entrepreneur or CEO. You know, you do what you have to do. Right. When when cash flow is poor and payroll is due in a couple of days, you do what you have to do, whether that means tap the credit line or get a credit line, approach fundraisers, uh, approach donors in a way that you wouldn't wouldn't like to, but uh, 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 go without yourself. You know, yeah. you 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 do what it ha- you do what you have to do. And by the way, the couple of things I, I mentioned first were access to capital. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you get a credit line or tap a credit line or go to fundraiser. Or, sorry, go to donors. Well, those are those are three sources of well, uh, two. Those are two different sources of access to capital that Noni and the millions of other women in poverty, you know, didn't have before before Grameen. But to, to do what you have to do. I mean, everybody's everybody's been there who's in charge of something. 
Yeah, I mean, and you know, and and I mean, I think I was probably channeling her when you know, in year two of Grameen Foundation, when we were, we had a you know first of a couple of financial crises, um, and uh, and I just said, well, I'm going to go off salary for three months uh, to conserve our cash so that my my employees get paid, and um, uh, and we you know we don't run out of cash. And I did that and do that again a year later, and I never had to do it again after that. But I realized that you know I'm I'm not. I have a little bit of a safety net. My my wife had a decent job, uh, and uh, I could you know turn to my family if I needed to, and you know that had everyone else appreciate that I sacrificed, um, and uh, and they just kind of dug in and and uh, and shared my you know deep in their commitment to the mission of the organization, which was spreading Ramin around the world. Uh, it was a very noble thing that we were trying to do, uh, take a success model. Uh, that uh, and and bring it to its full expression globally, and so and we pulled through both of those crises and grew to become a, a pretty good sized organization. Uh, and without without that, you know, willingness to just do what it, what it takes in that moment, uh, maybe that organization just kind of dies an early death. Uh, and uh, and I wasn't going to let that happen, nor was she. And so the, the tenacity to, to to build a a micro business, a, a large business, a nonprofit, it's it's you know it's it's similar. Um, and, uh, and and as you know, I in my my other book, Changing the World Without Losing Your Mind, I try to talk about that's important, but it's also important for you to take care of yourself. To to you know, you can work intensively and sacrifice for short bursts, but then you need to replenish yourself. Um, and uh, and that's an, that's another important part of it all. But yeah, there there are times where you just need to do whatever it takes, uh, and uh, and then you have your you know war stories to tell your kids and grandkids at some point. Yeah, when you look back, it's so much less painful when you're looking back, of course. It's time for Tony's Take Two. Please, over these next couple of weeks, take time for yourself. And that doesn't necessarily mean be by yourself, although it might. Whatever it is that lifts you up, if that's being with certain people who energize you and lift you, make you feel good, bring out your best, Spend time with those folks as much as you can. Uh, and that may or that may not be family. I realize that. Uh, hopefully it is. That, that would be very nice. But in a lot of cases, it's not always family. I understand. Believe me. I understand. Uh, without getting into a therapy session. Uh, so, but we all have obligations. Of course, you got to fulfill those. That's what they are. But beyond that, what is it that lifts you up? Maybe it's weightlifting. I don't know. Whatever it is that juices you, take time to do it. If it's with other folks, please seek them out. If it's by yourself, please make that time too. And you got to make that time. You're never going to find it. You have to make it. All this is to remind you that you have to take care of yourself before you can take care of others. And there's a Good fresh new year coming. You're going to be taking care of a lot of other folks. Take care of yourself first. That is Tony's Take Two. For these next few weeks, enjoy. We've got Buku buttloads more time for the Grameen Team Dream with Alex Counts. Are these loans in part grants of pride. I see it as, as boosting people up just because, you know, they, they can build something that, that, that they can point to and they have people who believe in them. So I, I saw a, this as sort of a, a pride, a, a pride boost. It's, it's, you know, what it is, is in a way that is might, might be more dramatic than these, some of these people have ever had in their lives. It's a vote of confidence. It's like, yeah. you can do this. Um, we're going to put, we're going to put our money. We're a big institution in your hands. We trust you. Um, again, trust you because you convinced some other women in the village that your business plan made sense and they're going to be there for you, but we trust you. And what often happens with the first loan, not so much, Noni was like off to the races, the, you know, within months, but a lot of women who maybe have more modest entrepreneurial ability, like they, that first year they're, they're like really nervous they, they, you know, they make a, they make a business decision that isn't that smart. And they just kind of scrape by at the end of the year, they pay off their loan. And like, there's, there's not a lot of surplus there. 
but they they paid off and they like are so relieved um and um but then they're like wait this isn't that hard like i i, I paid back a loan that was more i got more money as a loan than i'd ever held in my hand in my whole life and i invested it and it didn't go perfectly but like i can do this and so i always think of the first loan is like a starter loan it's like the preseason you know in, in baseball or football where it's like you you just you know you're just trying to get your sea legs um <laughs> to mix metaphors i suppose uh, and, yeah uh, well, i don't know so much about sports to begin with but um but it's like you you know you 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 get to do a trial run um and and yet someone trusted you and you and you didn't let them down and you're like you know what this isn't that hard like i just need to relax like i i'm like i'm i'm actually worthy and these women are here to help me and then from the second loan which you normally they'll allow you to take if you want to maybe 50% more than you took the first year so you go from a $50 loan to $75 loan and that first loan is it's really a confidence building loan it's people discovering their capabilities as a market actor and as a, and as someone in their family and in their communities um and one of the things they looked at is um there's a study, there was a study done in Bangladesh, and I wish there'd been more studies of microfinance in Bangladesh, but the ones that were there were very, and they said that, you know, a woman, a woman who borrows from Grameen, they, they defined what an empowered person was about how influential she is in her family and in her society and whether she, you know, whether she can make large purchases on her own without her spouse's permission. And they just, you know, 10 different indicators. And, and a, a woman who was borrowing from Grameen was eight times more likely to be empowered with really which means she has some some real say about what happens in her life and she's a she's a, an agent not just a just someone who waits for things to happen she makes things happen and and then they found that actually women who saw other grameen women work but they didn't themselves join grameen they were two and a half times more likely to be empowered than people who are not in grameen in a non-grameen village so empowerment was almost contag contagious yeah. Yeah. um and and that first loan um, which, you know, people, I mean, I watched it. This is not exaggerated. People's hands are sh shaking when they get the money. It's just, it's a, it's a vote of confidence beyond which people um, think that they were ever going to get in their lives. And while they may stumble a little bit in the, you know, in, in being nervous, um, you know, uh, because they, they, you know, they're, they, they, once they get the hang of it, uh, they're very grateful to the organization. They never want to let it down. And, they start discovering capabilities that they had that they didn't know they had before. And it's, and it's, you know, and it's whether, you know, a lot of people have this experience in school where a teacher saw a potential in them, gave them a vote of confidence that they discovered their intellectual abilities. Uh, and I certainly had that in school. And, uh, and in this case, it's really just almost at the basic level of being a, a human being and an economic actor in a, in a, in a, in a culture where again, jobs and safety nets aren't present. Everyone is on their own. And here you're saying, you know, you you in this market economy, you can make it work. Uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna put a bet on you, and if uh, and if you know, and then go for it. And it just is like it's transformational in the sense of a vote of confidence. The amount of money isn't that big, but what it signals to the person, the community is huge. So so yeah, vote of confidence. So empowering. Yeah, empowering. Um, I, I want to move to the foundation because that that brings us to the U.S. and and south side of Chicago. But I, I, I want folks to know there's so much more about the history of Grameen in the book. You know, uh, there was a crisis in late 2010, 2011, and a front page Wall Street Journal article. You know, you got to you got to get the book for the <laughs> for this rich yeah. history. Um, so, all right, but I would like to—I'd like to talk with the found, talk about the foundation. You led it for the first eighteen years. Uh, it came twenty-one years after the beginning of the bank. If I have my years right, it was it was nineteen ninety-seven. Yeah, and, and the foundation—I'm sorry—and the bank was seventy-six. Oh, and the other thing I want to say about the bank—you got to understand this was a bank with branches. There were there were hundreds of branches throughout yeah. Bangladesh and in other countries, and then they and then in the branches, uh, some of them had. Uh, health grameen health it was yeah. grameen education and then you can read about grameen phone and grameen telecom all empowering i mean these were not you know these were not like telecom companies that are that are to uh to spread telecommunications throughout the country this is well it does but it does it through individual entrepreneurs you know buying a phone or renting a phone and and 
sharing time for a couple minutes everybody in the village gets two minutes or something uh, to right. to check the market price for their for their commodity so you know it's just i mean this was this was not just like some <laughs> office in the capital in dhaka uh, there's branches throughout the country and, and in other countries Br branches of a bank it was a, it was a bank it was a grameen bank so yeah all right that's uh that's the bank we got it we got it but we only we got so much time so we got to move <laughs> to the foundation so you got to get yeah. the book to read more about the the bank the foundation um 1997 you were you were charged uh, you kicked off with six thousand dollars and a desire to expand this work to uh, to the poor in in the u.s you know my, my original vision when i wrote to muhammad yunus to ask him to host me as a fulbright scholar was i said um you know with a lot of naivete and that you would have when you're 19 years old but i said your work should be expanded around the world and i want to help you do it uh it shouldn't just be a solution for your country and you know he was already thinking about that but he really it took until 97 when i kind of proved my loyalty to him and my my understanding of what he was doing he said he said we all these people say to us you know we, we want to help you take your model global alex why don't you set up an office in in the us and try to kind of like mobilize all these people to take make this a global movement um and there were already some small beginnings but take it bigger and so of course i felt totally unprepared to do that and untrained and but i just said you know yes sir i'm going to give it my best shot and he gave me six thousand dollars which by the way is not a lot of money to start an organization with uh but i didn't know that and i didn't, didn't care i just wanted the chance and so we basically just tried to um not really knowing what we were doing tried to kind of harness all this energy about Grameen in Bangladesh could be a model for many other countries. And we were like, without a lot of resources in the start, let, let's let's try to make that happen. Um, and uh, and just one of our early things wins, and we, we had some setbacks and things that, you know, didn't go well, of course, but there were there were three social entrepreneurs in India who said, we, we wanna take Grameen to big scale in India. And we've got, um, we now collectively reach 46,000 women, which was a lot for the time. And we want to grow that to 164,000 women, basically triple, quadruple outreach. And we can do it in, we can do it in 30 months, but we need, and we need $8 million, but all we need from you, Alex, is a million dollars up front. Uh, and we can use that to attract other money within India. And I was like, game on. And I, a guy named Stephen Rockefeller, Nelson Rockefeller's grandson, a great guy. I just bumped into it at a reception. You know, this is, you need to just be working, networking every way. And he just helped me raise a million dollars in like six weeks uh, in the spring of 2000. And then these, we happened to choose the right people to bet on in India because they met their goal of quadrupling outreach of to women in India. And by the way, they, they at one point they said, microfinance will never work in India. The caste system, you know, it'll just, it's only Bangladesh. It'll never work in India, but these, these were the guys. And when they, when we gave them that million dollars and that, and that gave us a kind of a calling card, we said, listen, we know how to pick the winners. We know how to get them the early money that unlocks more money. And so we just designed all sorts of programs uh, to help in Nigeria and East Africa and Philippines and Haiti. Um, you know, that we, we just were able to spot people who had that kind of entrepreneurial spark, but that also that ethical compass of Muhammad Yunus and bet on them, give them attention, give them money, give them loan guarantees. And, and some of them just really hit it out of the ballpark in terms of becoming the Muhammad Yunus of their country. Um, and, uh, and that, it just felt great, right? That vision I had at 19, when I wrote this memo to, you know, this letter to Professor Yunus, and despite all of my inadequacies as a leader, especially in the early years, uh, to be able to attract the money and talent to uh, to basically kind of stake people who wanted to apply Eunice's insight in their countries and let them do that. And I just got the, the biography of a guy who was kind of the Muhammad Yunus of Nigeria, which is not an easy country to work in, uh, as, as, as most of your listeners probably know. Uh, it's more a place where you get, you know, scam solicitations to, you know, to give over your bank account numbers. But there are some very ethical social entrepreneurs. And this one guy, Godwin, he just needed a, just like a, a start and an ally. And uh, and he uh, and during COVID, he wrote his memoir and, uh, and 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 sent me a copy. And while, you know, the editing wasn't done quite as like as well as it should have been all that, I mean, you know, to read things and to say, like repeatedly, like Alex counts and his team 
like helped us at a critical moment. Otherwise this thing could have just collapsed or this thing could have just, you know, or I might've collapsed. And, and to know that he's not alone in that. And I, I give, I give 99% of the credit to him, but to have been an ally to people that were trying to uh, take this, take this microfinance, you know, revolution and concept to some really hard countries where there's was deep poverty, um, you know, that's enormously satisfying. And, uh, and, and it was, and you know, we had a great time doing it. And then, uh, and then, you know, the, the other thing that we may not have much time to talk about, but the early Grameen lending in Chicago uh, that I mentioned earlier, that yeah, a team uh, of Bangladeshis took that and have, have grown that in the U.S. to an amazing degree in the last 10 years. And finally, uh, we can say that microfinance not only works in, in, in the U.S., but it might even work better than it does in Bangladesh. Uh, and it's just so satisfying to see that. Now, I had very little role in that, um, but it I kind of helped bring some sensitivity to the potential of Grameen here. And then a team of Bangladeshis and Americans under the leadership of Andrew Young, the former CEO of Avon, uh, have just hit that one out of the park. And uh, it's just amazing to see. Talk, um, let, let, let's talk some about Chicago. Uh, yeah. I, I understand you, that's not, well, that wasn't within your 18 years. You, you, uh, you were limited, you know, you can only do so much in 18 years, you know, yeah. don't be too, don't be too hard on yourself. Um, but what, what have we seen in, in the U S in, in, you know, helping, helping the poor, uh, emerge. So, so, you know, again, I, prior to starting Grameen Foundation, when I did the research for this book in Chicago, um, I saw that small loans on a small scale could really help people. But what they didn't do in Chicago, this program called the Women's Self-Employment Program, they didn't figure out how to kind of systematize the lending process so that it could be done highly efficiently and at a large scale. But on a small scale, I saw Grameen Works, but the system of massifying it didn't exist. And so I went off to do Grameen and I tried to help people who were doing microfinance in the US, didn't really go anywhere. And then Muhammad Yunus got kind of frustrated with, you know, those people like me who were trying to apply his model in the U.S. And he sent he sent a Bangladeshi guy who had done some consulting for us in the Dominican Republic. So he knew some Spanish. And he just said, like, start knocking on doors in like Brooklyn and Queens. <laughs> and most of them will be slammed in your face. But just ask them, like, imagine you were in a Bangladeshi village and just ask them, like, would you be interested in a loan for starting or expanding a small business? And like most people slam doors in his face, but some of them said, mm, I'd be kind of, I mean, I'm sure you can't deliver that. You're probably a scam artist, but if you ask, yes, <laughs> I could use $600 to start a business, but you're never, and he would like note them down. And basically they, they, they started lending in 2008, like the, the global financial crisis is whatever. And they're like, let's, let's do this. And 2009, they started to get a, a couple hundred borrowers in New York city, the first branch. Um, and Fast forward 14 years, and they're about to lend their three billionth dollar mm. in, in amounts averaging 2,000, a 99% repayment. Um, and and they have and the research, uh, which was done on their Jersey City branch intensively for three years, shows that asset accumulation, credit scores increasing, many social and economic indicators are going in the right direction there. So it's just, it took time um, and um, to get the model right, but uh, but people trained by Eunice, again, I, I can say that what I did is I really took the model from the US base and helped it grow to other developing countries. And, uh, and you know, I'll, I'll forever be proud of my work in that, but other people, it's also inspired by Eunice, um, said, we're gonna, we're gonna figure out this US market. Uh, and it's mainly been kind of uh, Latina women, um, though they're increasing their numbers of African-American and other minorities and, and Caucasian entrepreneurs, but it's mostly Latina women who kind of come from countries where this kind of entrepreneurship at the grassroots level is more common. Uh, so they went with the thing, they started with what was likely to work, but they've just done a bang up job and shown that you know microfinance uh, can work in one of the poorest countries in the world, can work in one of the richest um, and uh, and it's all inspired by a soft-spoken Bangladeshi economist who just wandered outside of his classroom and said, "How can I help?" When you say ninety-nine percent repayment rates, I mean that that's a triple A plus plus you know portfolio of of borrowers. I mean, it, it, the 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 commitment that they have it's it's remarkable. What what kinds of businesses? Just generally, you know, did you, you see clusters of 
types of businesses in, here in the U.S.? Sure. A lot of them have to do in both Bangladesh and here uh, with food. Um, so selling, trading food, uh, whole, you know, buying at wholesale, selling at retail, or opening up a, like a, a hot dog stand or a tamale stand. Uh, some of it is catering business. Uh, some of it is opening up a, a little coffee shop. Uh, also, car detailing, car maintenance, uh, lawns care. Uh, a lot of people doing the um, opening up a little beauty salon, or just or just something as simple as getting a chair in someone else's, you know, kind of a, you know manicure pedicure, you know, kind of a thing. Uh, services, um, sewing machine to make clothes. Um, and uh, and and all sorts of you know just very creative things. Uh, one woman, back, going back to the when I was involved in this um, kind of prior to Green America, there was a woman very smart. She wanted money for a camera, and what she did is she would go through neighborhoods in in uh, a poor neighborhood in um, in uh, Brooklyn, and she would we a woman would come out of a beauty shop and she said, "You want me to take your picture?" Um, and this was before cell phones and pictures, and and it's like. You know, out, out, for fifteen dollars, you can get a picture of yourself, like looking at your absolute best. Um, and uh, and she made a business out of that. Like she, you know, and uh, and she would, you know, get the person's address and mail it to them because again, this is kind of, you know, little the technology wasn't as advanced, and like people had ideas. Um, and um, and so you, you you think of all of those, um, um, you know, a, a laundry business, a, a cleaning business. I mean, all that, that again, sometimes people either can't do it on the scale that they need to, or they can't do it at all without a, you know, a few hundred dollars of uh, a loan. And again, the vote of confidence uh, is, is, is critical in the U S uh, and, and this comes through in the stories I tell in the book, um, the, the vote of confidence, the having a supportive group of other women to be there for you is as important as, as the money um, and uh, and Andrea Young with Green America, like Professor Yunus, he started experimenting with, okay, what else could we do to support these people? Educational scholarships, uh, student loans, um, giving them good high quality vegetable seeds to grow vegetables, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and once you've got that economic engine where you lend to the poor, they pay you back with enough interest to pay the costs of the lending operation, then you can kind of on top of that, start a health clinic, as you mentioned, which they did in Bangladesh, start a, a rural, uh, a solar energy company to bring them solar panels. Um, a lot becomes possible once you have that basic lending operation that is, you know, break even, slightly profitable, and bringing that vote of confidence and that capital to to people who who lacked it, who are often, you know, just shocked that anyone would, would think about them as a potential lender. And, and would invest in them. Yeah. You, you cite someone in the book who says, there's a fortune to be made working at the bottom of the economic pyramid, and, and yeah. that's that's where Grameen worked, and they did make a they did make a a, a modest profit as as you described. Um, would in the U.S. was it was it mostly women also? Did that did that part translate also? Yes, uh, you know th there are variations on microcredit and Grameen, but the the people that have kind of been most directly inspired by Muhammad Yunus. They, they took his advice and they just made it an all women operation from day one. Uh, again, does it doesn't mean that the husbands and the and the kids get involved in the business like a lot of family businesses. But the woman is the one who um, is the liaison from the from the lender to the family. And that's and, the, and that's worked well. All right, Alex, uh, Grameen Bank, Grameen Foundation, all these decades you've you've worked with Muhammad Yunus. What what do you want to? What do you want folks to take away from the, the, the Grameen experience? Well, I think I just I, I think that it's, um, you know, next time you pass a small business and you're thinking of, oh, I'll just look in the window and then I'll buy on Amazon what they're what they're carrying. You know, as you use your market power, um, you know, think about the little guy. Think about the micro entrepreneur who may or may not be getting a micro loan, but they're still struggling and, and use your economic power. Um, find mentors like I found Muhammad Yunus to, to let you think about, you know, your, your, your nonprofit, you know, the people who listen to your radio program obviously have a lot of idealism. And I just think the right mentor at the right time, you know, you can take your idealism and your work ethic and just take it to a whole new level if you're willing to trust in a mentor and let them guide you. Uh, that's that's a, a, a lesson. And that, you know, that, and that poverty doesn't really need to exist. Uh, poverty is a construct. 
uh, based on, I think, a lack of imagination. Um, and it's a and it's a it's a construct based on a, a fundamental misunderstanding of what because we 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 create barriers between ourselves and poor people, right? Uh, and between and people of other races, uh, many and we just we don't really understand what they're capable of. And Muhammad Yunus figured that out. And and once you once you figure that out, a lot of things become possible, and you can really see it in the in the in the kind of in the distance, uh, as he would say, a poverty free world. Uh, there'll always be inequality, um, but there doesn't always have to be poverty. And the key insight there is the, the the potential of the world's poor women. They can be the engine of eliminating poverty if they're just given the chance, the tools, and the votes of confidence. Uh, and Muhammad Yunus was a shining example of that. And I was privileged to play a small role in what he did. Alex Counts, the book is Small Loans, Big Dreams. Grameen Bank and the Microfinance Revolution in Bangladesh, America, and beyond. You can get the book at alexcounts.com. Alex, thank you so much. Thank you, Tony. Love being on your program. The, the book is a delight and the, the stories rich. Congratulations again. Thank you so much. Next week, there ain't no show. Same for the week after. We'll be back on 9 January with Gene Takagi and Amy Sample Ward together. Let's hear what's on their minds, respectively and collectively, for 2023. I hope you enjoy your holiday season. Please do take time for yourself. Take care of yourself so you can help the others. If you missed any part of this week's show, I beseech you. Find it at TonyMartinetti.com. We're sponsored by Turn2 Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission, turn-2.co. Our creative producer is Claire Meyerhoff. The show's social media is by Susan Chavez. Mark Silverman is our web guy. And this music is by Scott Stein of Brooklyn. Thank you for that affirmation, Scotty. Be with me next week for Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Go out and be great! <laughs> <laughs>